Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. Most importantly is my guest today. I'm really enthused. I'm really excited to have Eric Martin on the show today. So in this episode, we're going to cover some interesting topics, but there's probably no one better than Eric that has a really broad spectrum of healthcare, especially in California on the West Coast. Eric is the managing director at 360 Advisory Group. He's the venture partner at Wavemaker 360 Health. They're doing some really interesting stuff early stage. And uh, I'm not going to steal his thunder, though. Eric, welcome to the show. Anthony, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for carving out and peeling out time to be with us, to share your story, your passions with us, and to kick it off origin stories right so tell us your origin story or guess i guess more specifically uh tell us a little bit about some of the things that have gone on in your life that have made you become the person that you you are today you have a strong passion for health love to hear where that comes from things that you went through that have led you to you know really focusing on health in such an elevated way well, you know, I, uh, I had the good fortune of growing up uh, in the Bay Area, right near UC San Francisco, which is just one of the most incredible medical campuses uh, in the country. And uh, my father had a long career there as a neurosurgeon and an oncologist and just surrounded really by patient care and uh, scientific discovery and always really enjoyed that. But going way back, and I mean way back, at the age of 12, 13, really fell in love with Wall Street. It was the 80s. That was kind of the thing. And, you know, I was just so passionate about the world of, uh, of big business and corporate raiders and the stock market and the like. And I think it made my folks a little bit nervous. And, uh, <laughs> the uh, summer of my 17-year-old uh, year, um, dad said, you know, I know how much you love science. Why don't you come work in a lab for a summer? And I mm -hmm. said, you know what? That would be very interesting. I'd love to do it. And he teed me up with a great job to work on synthetic islet cells for diabetic patients to try mm. and find a, a cure essentially and keep people, you know, from needing, uh, insulin injections and the like. And I was all ready to do it, but I thought to myself, you know, these hospitals, these big health systems, it's a big business, mm -hmm. and I'd love to know more about that side of things. And I was able to uh, have a conversation with uh, the deputy director of the hospital at UCSF, a woman named Margaret Bryan, who went on to become the president of Shriners. And although she was not thrilled to have a conversation with a 17-year-old kid, uh, we hit it off. And in the end, full-time job for the summer, uh, working for the administration at UCSF. And that was really it for me. I, I fell in mm -hmm. love with the business of healthcare, um, loved that intersection, uh, kind of all of the negotiation and deal making that went on to bring together you know, the players, you know, in healthcare to make these enterprises successful, yet being surrounded by the people delivering care and involved in scientific discovery. So, that was really it. And I, I just, I had the really good fortune of having a great experience there while I was a student. That translated into full-time work at UCLA in Los Angeles, um, was involved in managed care contract negotiation for a few years and then started to lead clinical programs. 
and uh, really just was exposed to almost every aspect of the business from strategic planning to operations and beyond, and uh, just really appreciated all that. And that turned into uh, a number of other kind of career moves, uh, ended up uh, creating the, the Heart Institute at Cedar sinai uh, after a move of 60 of my closest friends from UCLA to Cedar sinai It was a bit of a, of a happening uh, in, in the town. Um, and along the way, um, I was introduced to the world of venture capital. And uh, this happened in the late 90s. So 1999, was able to join a firm called Catalyst Venture Group and really then fell in love with kind of the, the world of, uh, of entrepreneurs and uh, early stage innovation and stayed connected to that world for quite a long time. And um, without going into too much detail, did some work with some other venture capital groups and private equity groups along the way. And then last year I had the opportunity uh, to join as a partner with these two firms and uh, to highlight Wavemaker 360 Health, um, early stage venture investor. We look at all things healthcare that do not require prolonged clinical trial work. So we're not investing in drug development, but <clears throat> digital health, data and analytics, AI, medical devices, things of that nature uh, are kind of squarely within our area of focus. And we are particularly interested in what we would call the drivers and enablers of value-based care. So that brings us to today. I love it. I love it, Eric. Um, so, so really appreciate your background. Really interesting, the steps you took, uh, what you focused on, and then obviously it just serves as a really good foundation and probably a tuning fork for assessing early stage opportunities because you've seen trends and you've seen kind of the economics on both sides, which is fascinating. Uh, Eric, let me ask you about the enablers for value-based care. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm curious on what in the value-based world you're most passionate about and just overall in health you're most passionate about. And if I can layer in another question there, if you want to interweave the two, is um, what is value-based uh, and what are some of the enablers? You know, what, Tell us a little, if you can help us unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so you know, there are almost two you know, paths we can take in, in this conversation. I'll touch on each of them just, just a little bit. So I think a lot of us think about all of the incredible you know, technology and uh, medical breakthroughs that we're seeing emerge today and those we know that are kind of on the horizon as the things that are going to enable or empower us to really get to a place where value-based care is real. Um, but I think maybe a less sexy um, factor and trend that we're seeing are the partnerships that are developing uh, mm -hmm. out in the industry, entities that you know historically had been adversaries, particularly payers and providers, are now seeking you know, ways to work together, or in some cases being forced <laughs> to work together. Right. And, you know, I, I can't say that I was an enormous fan of the Affordable Care Act. Um, it, it was a flawed document. Um, but what we cannot deny is that it set this country on a course to 
drive value in the delivery of care. And mm-hmm. it's a very simple definition. I think people overcomplicate the conversation around value-based care, but it is simply quality over cost, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's how do we drive the greatest quality? And, and if you think about it, and I imagine others who have you know, come on your show have talked about either the triple aim or the quadruple aim, um, I tend to go with the right. quadruple aim approach to life. We must improve the health of populations. We must enhance the experience of those patients and their families going through the uh, the healthcare system. We have to reduce the per capita cost. And, and this is the one that got added that took us from triple to quadruple. We must improve the experience for the physicians, the nurses, and the staff, because if mm. we don't make their lives better, the rest of it does not work. Right. So right. Uh, those are all, all critical, critical elements. And I am, you know, from a, a business standpoint, um, I am intrigued, passionate, and committed to making better these payer-provider partnerships that we're starting to see with insurance companies and health systems getting together, sharing in the premium dollar, and in fact, launching health plans um, that hopefully will do a better job managing populations and bringing more tailored therapy to the individual. So that's an area of interest for me. I love it. And I, yeah, I love the triple uh, or the quadruple aim. Triple aim has been talked about a lot. And I think that last piece is really important. It's, it's interesting. I was on the phone with someone today and they were t- talking about the Kaiser case study and why, you know, I think it was back in 2003, they were about to go with Cerner, but they went with Epic because Epic really spoke and resonated with the actual workers. And it, it looked to have appeal, whether it did or not, right, is, 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 who knows? But <laughs> but but the the outreach, the outreach and the connection, as opposed to you know at the time, you know Cerner more mostly resonated with the executives. But if you focus on the clinicians and that workflow and making their lives easier, so I appreciate that perspective. It's refreshing, and uh, I may I may uh, steal a little bit from using quadruple aim a lot more, uh, you know, these days. Yeah. But um, Eric, tell me a little bit a, a little bit more about maybe one or other two one or two other things in health today. That really captures your fascination. Obviously, you listen to to, to, to people uh, on our show talk about everything from AI genomics, uh, you know, quantum computing, um, CRISPR, and stem cells, and uh, the power of chakra meditation. So, full spectrum in health and well being. But what has your fascination most, and just and also why does it have your fascination most? Sure. Well, look, a, a lot of what you just listed is on my list uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see uh, lots and lots of young companies that use the artificial intelligence moniker when, in fact, they're not. They're an analytic company. They might be an automation company. But real AI is going to make a, a real difference. And, um, uh, you may be familiar with Vinod Kosla, the uh, well-known venture capitalist up in Silicon Valley, who was right. quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying technology is going to replace 80% of physicians. Right. Um, I don't know that uh, I would go quite that far, right. but if we take, you know, one disease, think about cancer. 
Right. And you think about all of the data that is now available, and that's today, let alone what's coming. Right. But whether it be genomic data, imaging data, lab data, uh, and beyond, um, how could one physician possibly curate all that information, make as specific a diagnosis as one would want, and then truly identify all of the options that should be made available to that patient. It's almost impossible today, and we're just at the beginning of kind of the data deluge that's coming. So we have to start to leverage this kind of, uh, of technology to provide real-time clinical decision support. I'm not ready to get rid of the doc, but right. I am ready to help them do a better job, a more efficient job, uh, along the way. And if you couple that with precision medicine, what I like to refer to as N of one medicine, mm-hmm. and you think about as the population starts to appreciate what that's really about, the demand for that approach to medicine is going to increase exponentially. Because if if I'm a patient, my loved one, my child, someone is a patient, and they show up and the doctor says, well, there's been an enormous amount of research on your particular condition. And on average, this therapy worked the best. Well, if you're mm-hmm. the patient or the parent of the patient, you don't really care what worked best on average. I want to know what's going to work best for me specifically. Right. And that's you know, where a lot of the magic happens. We're seeing some early indications of that through pharmacogenomics where you know, we can now do a genomic analysis on a patient and say, you know what, because of your unique genome, even though the standard of care is to give you this drug, we know you're not going to metabolize that drug as well as would be necessary for it to be effective. So instead of trying it for three months, failing, and then switching to a new drug, let's give you a drug up front right now that we know you're geared to be successful with. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much to talk about, but these are the things that are, are here today and developing and are certainly going to be much more powerful in the near future that we have to leverage fully to, in fact, do a better job of delivering quality while reducing cost. I love it. I love it, Eric. Yeah, no, thank you for, for, for laying that out. And, you know, I absolutely agree. Um, and, you know, not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, who's to say when and where, right, what's going to be replaced manual versus automated versus workflow. But one thing is for sure is that the pieces are in place, right, that the different alignments are happening. And so there's, it's, it's a fascinating, exciting time, Eric. And so it's, it's great. And obviously, you have a great front row seat to be um, designing the future by, by investing in these, in the, these innovations that support these areas, especially when they're, they're almost ready to go. You know, there's a lot in this workflow and selling and buying in this process that's been unlocked lately. And, you know, I know, I know us at Health Hero, we've, we've benefited from that significantly and that phenomenon. But I guess what's most importantly, Eric, let me ask you about the future of healthcare and maybe, you know, choose a timeline, whether it's 10, 20, 10,000 years from now, but what's the, what's the future of health look like according to Eric and, and, uh, and, and why is that why is that future exciting to you? You know, I don't know that I can project uh, ten thousand years ahead. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> it's 
I hope it's very much Star Trek like and uh, right, right. You know, we'll we'll wave a wand over an individual and be done. And we may not be that far away. I I heard uh, Andy Conrad, who leads uh, Google Verily, talk about uh, you know magnetic nanobots that will you know be you know aggregated in the millions in in every one of us and interrogate all of our organs to make sure things are working well and then you know report back to some wearable device so he's already right. thinking uh and trying to deliver on the 10,000 year forward uh, promise but uh right. in the nearer term you know and I know you've had other folks come on to talk about really all of the wonderful innovations that we're seeing in healthcare I I'm going to focus on something maybe a little bit more mundane. Right. And I'm going to quote uh, a friend of mine, uh, Anil Sethi, who was the, well, he's had, he's on his sixth company now, Citizen, happens to be mm-hmm. one of our portfolio companies. But mm-hmm. Anil's last company, which uh, was called Glimpse and was only uh, out of stealth for about three weeks before they were acquired by Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he did a, a beautiful job of curating electronic medical records across platforms, across health systems. Um, but underneath it all is the power of putting personal health information truly in the hands of the patient and letting mm-hmm. the patient decide who it should be shared with, how it should be shared, donating that data to research and beyond. So, Mm-hmm. It, Anil says, and, and I agree, is that we were to a certain extent swindled by HIPAA. Right. Right. Everyone's focused on the privacy part of HIPAA. And God right. forbid anybody should hear anything about an individual's you know, health status. Right. Well, the downside, of course, is that you create a culture of fear within healthcare, and now right. data is not being shared where it can do phenomenal good. Right. So if we can create kind of data highways that people can hook into to drive really meaningful research, meaningful uh, development of treatment options, um, there's just enormous power uh, in, in that sort of thing. And... Another example where you take that type of an effort and you allow the patient, of course, a patient, and I'm not a huge believer in consumer-driven healthcare. I know that it's been a popular topic, put more dollars in the hands of the patients and they'll make the right decisions about their care. Healthcare is very complicated. And with all the information that's becoming available, the average person simply cannot understand, process, and make appropriate decisions. So they, they need right. guidance. Right. However, if you take aggregated health information, so if I'm, I don't want to say me, but if a patient, an oncology patient, to use that as the example, and they've been to five different provider organizations, mm-hmm. and you can bring all those records together in one place, and you have a reconciled medication list, you uh, reconciled lab list, you can look for things that maybe don't quite match up between healthcare providers, and you can solve for that. You can take the aggregated information to make greater decisions and to use the experience of that individual and the decisions that were made by their caregivers to then inform the thinking of patients that are to come. There's enormous power 
in that. And if you think about oncology specifically, where you're matching patients to trials, mm-hmm. and they're always, you know, right now there are about 3,500 clinical trials going on for, you know, promising cancer therapies. Right now you have drug companies trying to find patients that match their trial. Mm-hmm. If you flip that around, and there are some companies doing this, like X-Cures up in Northern California, where you take the patient, you bring together all of the information about that patient, and on their behalf, you scour the earth for all of the options that are relevant to that patient. And that's not just because you've aggregated lots of information on lots of patients, meaning their health information, but you've also aggregated the decision-making that was made by each of their caregivers and start to derive algorithms from that to help inform decisions that are to be made for the patients of tomorrow. Now, instead of a drug company finding a patient that fits what they want, you have patients that can look at all of the trials and all the different standard of care protocols that are out there, and you can find that pathway that is most appropriate for them. So I've gone on a little too long on that topic, but it is an area I'm passionate about. And um, I think no, we're going to see a lot of yeah. good things come. It, it's fascinating. I, I love what Anil's doing. I read about his story. I, you know, I've been con- actually, I, I think he was supposed to be on the show. So you were prompting me to circle back uh, with him. But um, I love what he's doing. And it's almost like this, this longitudinal like health record uh, element. I, I guess let me come back to that for a second. But on the point of what you're mentioning with like this optimization model for trials and flipping the tables and matching w- with that company, do you see promise that the capacity gets filled? So it's almost like an Airbnb capacity optimization model for the matching of the trials. Do you see like if the patients are searching for what they need with the the ones that are looking for trials meet their needs quicker? Are you seeing some promise of that? We are, and and it goes a step further, um, mm-hmm. and this is something I did not appreciate until recently, mm-hmm. but it's extraordinarily powerful. So what we were just talking about is really good for patients mm-hmm. because they get to see more options and they get to see options that are most tailored to them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to put my venture capital hat on and you start to think about from an economic standpoint, what are the other values? So delivering better patient care with better outcomes, for sure, that goes without saying. But if you now think about bringing patients into a model like this and you have drug companies that have developed pharmaceuticals with a particular indication and there may be some sense that that drug would also benefit some other either rare disease or niche population. But for the drug company to go and run those trials to get that additional indication on their label, Mm -hmm. it would be tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and they just can't make that business decision to make that investment. But if you now have a platform of patients across the country, across the globe, And that includes these niche populations of patients with the rare tumors, the orphan diseases and the like. Mm -hmm. You can now do the trial work on behalf of those drug manufacturers, deliver the data to them and to the FDA, 
And that new indication is now provided for that drug. Enormous financial returns to the manufacturer who gets the new indication, a patent extension, and of course, you accelerate the innovation and the therapies that become available to patients uh, who are in desperate need. So that's a, a, an extension of the model that we're very excited about. We put it yeah. to the test. I should say x has put it to the test, and they've already done it once, and uh, it was just a, a wonderful thing to see, and I think there's a lot more where that comes from. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating paradigm, and it's obviously those like introductions of those paradigms into these spaces that flip the table, right? And there's nothing more exciting than like flipping the table where in this space, you know, the obstacle is the obstacle, and you just you know everyone just keeps white knuckling it. But the best thing to do is you know, hey, the obstacle is the way. Flip, just flip the table, right? And how do you how do you flip it? Um, uh, I guess along the same lines, what like citizens doing, it feels like, and here's my analogy of like what's been going on with the, the EHRs is you've got the EHRs, which are traditionally been like a record or a scene in the story, but it's not the full story of the patient, right? It's just kind of like this snapshot. And then there, there's just like silence, you know, chapter seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 are just like blank. <laughs> and then you go back to the doctor yeah. and chapter 13 you're back in the ehr but now that record's on epic and you're at kaiser and you weren't at ucla before on cerner right and so it feels like the pieces of these puzzles are scattered around everywhere but in the meantime now you have all this great digital data that's probably sitting on your apple health your apple watch you're expressing it on social media and you know you've been doing stuff for your health along the time you've been living your life where do you where does that reside on your smartphone social media but yeah that patient record when you go back is going to be very valuable. It's not aggregated. So I have this analogy in my head of like the scene versus the story. And, um, but I like what Anil's doing because it does feel like it provide, can provide a consumer facing, uh, consumer friendly and consumer facing, if I'm understanding the company correct, longitudinal view of that story that can follow the consumer around. Um, forgive me if my my uh, my playback of, of that is a little off, but I guess uh, I guess that leads to a question: Is yeah. what are your thoughts on that? And does that does it reside in the new world? Does that reside? Where does the data reside? Right, cloud companies, Amazon, Google. You have the EHRs, the Cerners, the Epics. You have CRM concepts that are patient centered models like Salesforce and Microsoft that that have the the money and the power and the trust at an enterprise level to introduce a better model than the EHRs. Uh, you ha- but let alone you have these now consumer facing experiences like Apple Health that can that is capturing our data, and then you have social media elements. Um, how do you see that all playing together? Is is it is the solution? You know, this end and be all solution is a consumer facing longitudinal blockchain based story that's following everyone around. Um, uh, sorry, that's more that's more than a question. That's probably just more like a uh, a ramble there. But what are your thoughts? No, no, it's uh... yeah. It's, it's a question that we, we discuss regularly. Um, I think, you know, there are a number of uh, potential endpoints for this, and none of us are completely sure who's going to win. But, uh, you know, in the end, first off, I think you made the point earlier, and you're right, the EMR is simply one source of data. Right. And that's not just true because people go to different health systems. But even within a health system, the EMR is just one data source. There are many others that are not integrated with the EMR that have important information 
on patients, whether it be through, you know, OR systems or imaging systems or otherwise. And, you know, we have to do a better job of bringing it all together and looking at the, the interplay and the correlation between those different data points. And, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about along these lines is that we're finally in what I'm calling the post-EMR era. Right. So, you know, if you went to any health system CIO over the last 10 years and said, you know, I've got this great, you know, tech innovation that I think is going to be wonderful for your institution. Can we talk about it and think about how we might implement it here? They would say, oh, man, I'm in the middle of an Epic install. I'm in the middle of a Cerner install. You know, we have no bandwidth for anything else right now. Right. Got to get through this. I'm sorry. You know, best of luck to you. Right. We're done now. They're in. Whether it's Epic, Cerner, Meditech, Allscripts, whatever it might be, they're in. And now the conversations are happening. The CIOs have taken a breath and they're saying, you know what? Yeah, I recognize that we could be doing a heck of a lot more. And, oh, by the way, the the speed of development in healthcare tech has just uh, just dramatically increased. So we're seeing great tech present itself. We now have a market that's ready to listen and think about how it can be implemented. And within all of that, I think we're going to end up with a different platform, to your point, uh, Mm -hmm. that this data is ultimately going to live on. And I do believe that patient control is going to be key because at the end of the day, a patient must give permission. So, and you know, you'll hear Anil Sethi talk about this from time to time. It's not unlike a Twitter feed. I want to choose who's following me. Right. And, you know, I should be able to create a care team of people that I trust who have access to all of my records at any time and are aware of updates. And that data needs to be presented in an efficient, clear manner with, you know, the appropriate alerts when there are things that are maybe a little bit out of whack that someone needs to pay attention to. And that's where the AI and the automation comes in. Again, there's only so much a human being can do. We must hold the hands of the patients and the providers so that they can do their part as right. well as they possibly can. And that's what it's all about. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And it dovetails to your comment earlier too. I mean, not only, I agree with you absolutely with your thesis post EMR error, but um, error, but the, um, the security element of what HIPAA has brought about has injected this natural reaction of just embedded fear. Cause when you compartmentalize and you claw back, you know, there is that fear and you can't really provide a system that's ultimately loving and caring for everyone and where, where someone can really express themselves and their story in the right way because then it's all staccato because it's stuck on security. And, and then, you know, if one player is too nervous about the security, that's that's a chapter of your book right there. That's a chapter of your story. Uh, and I yeah. love Anil's analogy as well uh, and that that mindset of like the Twitter follow. You know, it's almost like, you know, when this permissioning and consenting comes about, it needs to be, I think Google does a good job of it. Like if you share out a Google doc, like it's pretty clear, like who you share that document out to. Uh, and, and it gives you that yeah. confidence. But I think going a step further, it's, a, you know, I think one of the best is, you know, uh, 
the enablers for text messages. It's super clear who's on that text message or not. And we still sometimes will send, you know, the funny emoji that was meant for our spouse to, you know, the person we're trying to sign a deal with. And you have to go, like, oh, so sorry. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to send you that mem. But, um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, permissioning, user experience, that mindset, that paradigm, I think is super key. It's, just, it's exciting. It's almost like we're on the verge of it. And it uh, sounds like companies like Citizens, you know, with leadership from Anil or uh, people like Anil is like ushering that, that mindset in, which is so needed. Um, yeah. And it's funny, I've obviously you've heard on the show, we talk a lot about genomics and CRISPR and all this like cutting edge stuff. But the stuff that matters the most is, um, you know, user experience access, you know, can I have my data? Can we share my data like the basics? Uh, and then layer on top of that, the other common sense element that is is still like super sense is is well being. I guess Eric, that leads me to kind of my last question here. And you know, obviously we can geek out on a lot of this stuff for a while here, but I think my my last question is, is more along the lines on like personal well being. So I'd love to hear a little bit about one routine you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that keeps your engine going. Obviously, you've seen a lot, and I'm always intrigued to hear about, you know, people that are deep in health technology and healthcare, and one or two things that they do on a personal basis that, you know, whether it's mind, body, or spirit, or um, maybe it's an awesome cartoon you love watching once a week that really, really calms you, you know, um, which I had a few <laughs> of those, but I'd love to just hear, uh, you know, something that works for you. Well, this is uh, this is the fun part of the conversation. So, you know, I'll actually give you three things. So, sure. Number one, staying active. You know, I'm mm -hmm. I'm I'm getting up there. Just became a grandfather recently, and uh, <laughs> um, still play ball every week. And uh, I'm going to keep doing it until I until I can't. Nice. So, physical activity. There's no greater rush. Um, it's uh, a great way to uh to unplug a little bit refresh the body and the mind comes with it and uh you know couldn't uh, be more committed to doing that personally and i certainly recommend it to a lot of my friends we all work very hard it's easy to say i just don't have time i gotta get x y or z done you've got to make the time and along those lines um i happen to do it for religious purposes but it really, at least what I'm going to share, has nothing to do with, with religion. I observed the Sabbath on Saturday, mm -hmm. and irrespective of religion, that's a whole topic for another, uh, another podcast, but the, the benefit of unplugging, really right. unplugging, and, and right. we take it to an extreme. We, we don't use electronics. On that day, so no smartphones, no television, no computer for a day. We reconnect with family and friends. We have a lot of great conversation. Might do a little, you know, learning here or there. But um, I don't know if I could have survived all of my career experiences if I didn't have that one day a week right. to completely unplug and recharge. And there was a time where I was doing work for a private equity firm where we were doing 16 to 20 hour days, mm. six days a week. But I had that one day mm -hmm. and that's what made it all work. So, you know, anyway, I recommend no, it to no, any no, and all. 
and no, uh, sorry. I think you, did you have a, you had a third one as well before I cut you off there. <laughs> oh, I do. My, my third one is, is a new one for me and it's an area of, of medicine and, and healthcare that I believe in. I don't know enough about, but I'm committed to learning more. And that is kind of the whole world of the microbiome. Right. Um, and I'm sure you've discussed it before with others, but um, I have seen just mounting evidence that, you know, a healthy microbiome uh, can have an enormous effect on longevity, quality of yes. life, neuro wellness, on and on and on. And, you know, I've done a few things to uh, alter my diet to, uh, mm-hmm. to be here in that way, but I know I've got a lot more to learn. And uh, I'm committed to doing it. I love it. I love it. Eric, just to geek out with you and elaborate on the, the, your three, three habits, which I, I think are phenomenal. Um, I guess, what, what ball do you play? Basketball, baseball? or? Um... So I love all sports, but uh, right now, basketball is, uh, is the focus. You played in college, right? Or intramural? or You went to UCLA? Remind me again. But Yeah, played- actually, I, I, I played lacrosse at UCLA, but my, uh, my roommate was the starting center for the basketball team, and I always loved playing ball. I'm a little guy, so I was never going to have much of a, a career. But, um, you know, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoy it and try to play as often as I can. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, I'm five eleven. I play. I played uh, point guard, shooting guard in, in in high school, and you're inspiring me. Um, but I got elbowed in the throat uh, last year, and it was a big Kaiser bill. And then I sprained my ankle, oh. and then my and then I have a three year old that's active. My wife said, "No more ball for you." And I'm like, "Okay," but you're inspiring me. I'm gonna go into my house tonight and tell my wife I'm gonna um, start playing basketball again. I'll, I'll keep you posted. You gotta get back out goes. there. Yeah, gotta I got to get back to. out there. I, I used to. to play. I also yeah. played in a, a contact flag football league uh, every week. And that led to enough trips to the hospital that I did have to stop that both for family and for work. <laughs> but right, right. You know, <laughs> right. But no, I, I got to get out there with the basketball. I'm going to I'm going to try and go on Amazon and get some new Kobe's or Jordan's or something that'll that'll force function me. <laughs> but um, I love it. But uh, well, you and I'll go out. We'll we'll have a little one on one. Oh Yeah, that'll be great. That'll be that'll be awesome. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. But uh, um, and then on the second point on the Sabbath, you know, what's funny is I've been trying to do that as well on a Saturday is the, the unplugging on a Saturday. And if I have a thought or in my mind, I'm focusing on like writing it down. Um, I try not yep. to run off with the story. I write it down and just prioritize and prioritize, but I don't focus on doing like these flurries and Pomodoro's worth of work on Saturdays. And I've been feeling more refreshed doing that. And I, I think the way that the Sabbath was created, I, I don't want to introduce controversy here, but obviously our Monday through Friday, like, you know, go, 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 you know, um, the glory of like overworking and then crashing Friday afternoon. Uh, didn't, that wasn't, I don't think that was accounted for, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago. And so the reset button, you got to reboot. And on the microbiome, it's interesting. I have to send you this other company that I've been looking at seed.com. They've been showing up on my Facebook feed, but supposedly they have an extra capsule layer that makes the mic, the probiotic really make it to the gut. But I've been trying to do more sauerkraut, kimchi, um, uh, collagen protein with greens mixed in, um, and, and mix that in when I'm fasting. And, uh, wow. I did just pass the, the, I think the universe was just testing me a little bit with the, the cookie crisp 
and cookies in her office. And I said no to him. And I think don't my dad's going to thank me later. Yeah, don't do it. It's dangerous, right? And <laughs> I was just telling my wife last week, I was like, my favorite cereal growing up was Cookie Crisp. And there was like two boxes there. And I was like, oh, no, is this the Matrix test in here? But um, but I passed it. I passed it. So um, Good man. But anyway, I love your three things. I love it. This is my favorite part of these episodes is, is geeking about what matters. But um, imagine like someone that's sick that just partakes in just the three things that you're doing. I mean, that's a, that's a 20 to 50% lift in someone's health in seven days. Right. So, um, and so it's, but it's, it's sometimes just counterintuitive and it just takes that bravery and that, that love to be fearless about, you know, taking that step in one health, one's health. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for going over on time. This was very, these episodes and, and doing this is extremely rewarding for me, but most importantly, I try and tee it up in a way that it's, it's, it's punchy bite-sized stuff that our listeners can drive to work with. And, uh, you know, our listeners are hospital CEOs, provider CEOs, and just people passionate about health. And so, um, if, if, if our, if our audience wants to get in touch with you, what's a great way to interact with you on social media or directly if you'd like them to, to do so? Yeah, boy, I'd say, uh, you know, for me, email is probably the best way linked. I'm on LinkedIn. I can't say that I've, I've taken advantage of all of what's out there in the world of social media. LinkedIn right. is pretty much the extent of it, uh, for me, but certainly happy to share, uh, email and, for LinkedIn, you just have to remember my funny uh, spelling of my last name, which is M-A-R-T-O-N. Right. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Love to have you back on as you see and invest in other things, hear about the portfolio companies and what they're doing, go deeper on some of these topics. But I think most importantly, Eric, this was great to have you on and thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. You're doing great work and uh, it's just, it's great to know you and, and your team. Appreciate the support. Thank you so much, Eric. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for, ma- for making time. This was great. Hey, thank you. Be well. Thanks.